Hi everyone and welcome to Training for Life Redeemed. I'm Dan and I'm here with my father, Dr. David Jackson. We are continuing to work our way through the theology of the child. Uh, the last few weeks we've covered a, quite a lot of things. We've talked about whether or not we know if children are saved, do they all go to heaven or the hell or do we just not know stuff? Generally the conclusion was that we don't really know. Uh, we just know that God promises that the elect are saved and those who aren't elect are not saved. Uh, we looked at whether or not there was a thing like covenant children that was last mm -hmm. week where we're talking about you know that is a child saved through the faith of their parents came to the conclusion that the bible does not say that uh but that doesn't mean that that child is an elect we just don't know so That's leaving right. it there today dad we're going to be looking at giving children an informed choice yeah yep awesome so <laughs> how do we do that dad how what does the bible say about how we go about giving our children an informed choice yeah. about whether or not they follow Jesus or not. Yeah, so one of, the, one of the great problems we have in raising children, and this leads us into the whole topic of Christian schooling, all those sort of areas, is that if we, if we have settled from the Bible that we have no guarantee from God that these little characters are all saved, mm. somebody... Somebody made a comment some years ago. If children, if God promised to save children while they're children and somehow at puberty they get unsaved, wouldn't it be better to shoot them? <laughs> it was a, it was in the middle of a debate and it was a sarcastic comment. But there's a sad thing behind that. When the Roman Catholic Church went into South America and were dealing with tribal people back in the 1500s, they sent the Jesuits in and they couldn't speak the language of the tribal people. So they, this is, I was shocked when I did this at history in university. They took a bunch of natives down to the river, baptised them and shot them. And the idea was, if we baptise you, you're born again. And if then we shoot you, you can't commit a sin after baptism, you go straight to heaven. Mm. Um, now that, that's an that's the, the extreme ultimate stupidity and criminality and destructive nature of thinking that we are the ones who save people. So if I can't, if I can't save my children, if that's a work of God and of his grace and he's sovereign over it, and if he doesn't tell me in advance who the elector so I don't know whether my children are saved or will be saved, what am I doing? And that, that becomes the great parental question. What am I going to do with these kids? What is my responsibility? Uh, in lots of Christian schools and Christian schooling, generally church schooling, there seems to be a thing that says, you know, that speaks to the children as we. We'll talk about that in another session. Uh, there's an attitude that somehow we could have these kids and treat them as little Christians, like we talked about last week and they will then grow up to be little Christians. But the concept of evangelising them, of giving them a choice, we tell ourselves, but they're too young to make a choice, so there's no point doing that. So what are we doing? Well, I did a survey a few years, a long time ago. I actually found it the other day. We surveyed the staff at our, our Christian school. To, there's 250 people on the books. Mm-hmm. There were 150 at the staff meeting, and I said, so how many of you were converted before you were 12? Uh, 52 hands went up. How many were converted before 18? 
another 50 hands went up. So by the time somebody reaches what we would call adulthood, 18, you're talking about three quarters of the people in the room who are Christians were converted before that age. Yeah. And of them, half of them were converted in childhood and remember making a commitment to Christ. So we've got to go back and think, what does the Bible tell me I should do with these kids? Which seems to be the last question we ask. <laughs> what does God require of parents? And my, the answer I come to is he requires us to give the child an informed choice, to respect their integrity, to respect the work of the Holy Spirit, that it's his work, not my work. But my work is to be like the elders and the apostles. I love that phrase in Acts chapter 2, where Peter says to the the elders and the, the other apostles of the church, I'm not going to give up waiting on ta- waiting serving the word of God to wait on tables. Mm. And it's the same word, deacon. I'm not going to. I'm a um, what would you call it? A waiter in a restaurant. So on my plate is the word of God. I'm not going to give up dishing up the word of God to go running around dishing up lunch. So go and appoint seven men full of the Holy Spirit to do the meals on wheels for the widows. I'm not going to give up the ministry of the Word of God. So our job is to put the Word of God on the plate and hand it to the kids, and they all then, the whole Holy Spirit will go to work, they'll go to wrestle with it, and we've given them an informed choice. That's my job. Okay. So our job is then to give them an informed choice. And so how, how do I go about giving them the informed choice? So there's, yeah, the basics of... You know, I could sit down and just go, yeah, Jesus died for you and explain, you know, like a two ways to live ways type to live, thing yeah. uh, with them. Is that, is that enough? Like, what, like how, how do I go about making sure they've got yeah. a fully informed choice put before them? Uh, do they need to hear everything before they can make their choice? So that, you know, does it yeah. need to be completely informed or partly informed? Do I hold a children's Billy Graham ready and call rally and call for them to come forward? Yeah, or do yeah. I make them have to go through and be able to recite the entire catechism before I can <laughs> get them to be baptised? Like, yeah. what? what does it take? Uh, well, we go back to the Bible. Deuteronomy 6. Uh, yeah, Deuteronomy 6. Why don't we read the thing? Read the Bible's a good idea. This is the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which Yahweh your God has commanded me to teach you. So teaching is the thing. That you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Yahweh your God and keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. I like that part. <laughs> o Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. You will love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your life, with all your strength. These words which I'm commanding you today will be on your heart. You'll teach them diligently to your sons and you'll talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You will bind them as a sign on your hand. They'll be as frontlets on your forehead. 
you will write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Yeah, so basically you're meant to be talking about the Bible and its application <laughs> all the time with all your children as part of their general training and upbringing, yeah. and et cetera. All right. Now, to do that, you've got to read the text. <laughs> <laughs> it requires that I know the text pretty well. <laughs> yeah, it, it, requires, it requires parents to read the Bible to their children, with their children, from the beginning of their earliest memories, as soon as they have some language, we, or even before we start teaching them the Word of God. And we, we don't just read it, close it, put it away. We talk about it. We answer questions. We provoke questions. We hold everything that we do, we relate back to the Scriptures. Yeah. And I would say even that you don't just do this with your kids. This should be generally the way Christians live. Yes. This. <laughs> you know, constantly talking about the Bible. And it's interesting, Dad, it talks here about, you know, the words being on your heart, and then you compare that to the promises that come with the Holy Spirit and, you know, the new covenant and the words yeah. being on your heart, you know, the laws of God yeah. being on your heart, and you kind I'm of got- know, knowing them intuitively. But here, if we go back to where that's kind of coming from, it's not so much knowing it intuitively. It's about actually studying them and knowing them. <laughs> yeah, and understanding and comprehending, yeah, and having it explained. I'll, I'll tell the story. I, I grew up in a non-Christian family. So we didn't read the Bible as a family. Pat grew up in a Christian family, but they didn't read the Bible as a family either. But we did read the Bible with our kids, usually at bedtime and so forth. But when I was thinking about going to theological college to study, there was one Australian fellow we knew of who'd been to Westminster Seminary. And so my friend Peter Adamson and I, we went round to his place. We asked him, can we come and talk to you about going to Westminster? How on earth is that possible for an Australian? And uh, Noel Weeks invited us round to his place for dinner. And uh, we go round to his place to dinner. And, you know, you, you're doing all the dinner normal things. He's got four kids around the table. I think it was four. But what blew me away, forget about, you know, sort of, what are the practicalities of going to Westminster? How do I get across the ocean and survive financially? They were the questions we came with. But we sat at that table, and at the end of the meal, he did the family Bible reading, and we got to watch. And he opened the Bible, and he did a passage out of 1 Kings where the northern kingdom Israel and Syria are going to war with the southern kingdom of Judah and where King Ahaz is being threatened by all of this and all sorts of terrible things are happening with the Assyrians. Now, you've got children around the table who are like five, ten years old, and we're reading this stuff. And I'm looking at this going, this wouldn't have been my first passage to pick to teach to a child, right? Shouldn't I be reading the the Jesus Storybook Bible or something? Yeah. (laughs) Is this age appropriate? What are we doing? So he reads the text, the whole text, And at the end of it, he explains it. Now, to be fair, Noel Weeks is a world authority on Assyriology. He reads the clay tablets, you know, uh, speaks the languages, I don't know. But he knew this stuff backwards. And he then told the story and explained the text. And those kids were lights on Mm. all the way around the table. And he related it to Christ and his work. And it was 15 minutes and at the end of it, but I don't know, I can't remember what else we talked about that night, 
but I remember getting in Peter's car as we left to go, and I said, if that's what Westminster teaches you to do, I'm going. Yeah. To be able to explain the Bible to a five-year-old and to do it accurately uh, like that, that was, that was the goal that we set out to do. And to be honest, I think that's one of the biggest things that parents struggle with. They don't know their Bible well enough to be able to explain it. And then the challenge is, well, the church is supposed to be training us yeah. to be able to do that. And we learn, if I can be critical of the evangelical church, we teach skills but not content. Yeah, I think schools do a lot of that too. We teach the skills of running a Bible study, but we actually don't teach <laughs> the content of the text. Hmm. The ability um, to be able to answer the questions when they do come up and... Yeah, to go and find good answers to those questions. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, in a church Bible study group, when, when you're training, you know, growth group leaders or something, a statement that I hear from the ministers regularly is, and, and this is across the board, many churches, you can't expect your Bible study leader to be able to answer the questions. We're not sending them in as teachers, we're sending them in as facilitators. Hmm. Whereas as parents and as people ministering to these kids... They're, it's not about facilitating, it's about teaching, and it's about content, and we've got to know our Bibles to do that. Yeah. And so to be an effective, to give a kid an informed choice, they need to be informed, and that means we're going to read the Bible. So, well, you've got a plan to do that, haven't you? Sure do. Sure do. Yeah. I mean, unless it's so well raised and ingrained that it happens all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> but it's, it is. You've got to purposely set time aside for your own self to read and study and then to be able to sit down with your kids and to read to them and to answer their questions, to push them in their knowledge and and the application because ultimately, you know, knowing stuff's good, but you also need to, you know, it's very clear and then you've got to apply it. You've got to be able to live that out and we live that out. As parents, by setting an example, yep. uh, but also by thinking through, because ultimately I suck as an example uh, because I'm not Jesus, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. And so I'm better than, you know, I don't know, someone who's not, <laughs> someone who's not following Jesus, I guess, but uh, because I'm at least you know, focused on Christ when, with, with my, even with my errors and everything and uh, my examples. But, yeah. But that's the, also... the teaching of the application is important because you can yeah. sit there and go, you know, uh, there is an element of do as I say, not not just yeah. as I do. <laughs> yeah. I, but this, this was one of the things that struck me when I, I mean, becoming a Christian and then becoming a father. One of the agendas that I was very concerned about, and I, I mean, I honour my dad in lots of ways for the things that he did. Uh, given his background, I'm surprised that he survived as a parent and that I survived as a child. He was a foster kid, you know, kicked out of home and all sorts of things. All sorts of alienation, no example or model of fatherhood or parenthood or husbands even. How do men survive to, to fill this role with no examples? Mm. And, and one of the things that Dad was not good at was saying sorry. I remember there was once in my life when he apologised. But when you look at the Bible, one of the things kids need to see is the gospel in action, and the gospel in action is when they, they need to see that it's safe to repent, to be sorry, to confess, to be forgiven, and to do those things. They need to be trained to repent, <laughs> and you have to set an example for that. 
It's not, you know, then shaming myself in front of my sons or my daughters for me to be, I got it wrong, I'm sorry, and to seek the forgiveness of a five-year-old. We have to be able to do that. But let me go back. We, We like application, but we don't like content. And so what I find happening with kids, particularly the kids that we taught at high school, is that they knew some of the applications of the word of God. They knew right and wrong. But they know why. But not why. Hmm. Um, and they didn't take it back to the Bible and work it out. So one of the things that struck me about uh, the biblical way of teaching uh, is, is a thing called Doresh. And Doresh is search the scriptures, searching the scriptures. So we're going back and we're saying, I have a problem. I don't know what to do. So what do we do? We go back to the Bible. We start at Genesis 1. We read until we find the answer. Searching the scriptures. Not something we do terribly often. Yeah. Uh, But that's something to teach a child to do. But to do that, we've got to raise a child who can read the Bible for themselves. And then we've got to start to think about what parts of the Bible do we read with children when? Do we have a Bible reading plan? Mm-hmm. Do we have any goals? Do we have any setup? So I don't know how well you remember. I remember having a reading chart that I used to highlight off. Yep. Yep. You had a reading chart. <laughs> having goals of being able to read it all by, I think it was the end of year three, I think I was meant I to, to try. Yeah. yeah that's... that's my Bible reading chart. I still use it currently. <laughs> so we gave our kids Bible reading charts and, you know, as we ticked off different books of the Bible, uh, there was a great sense of triumph in all of that. <laughs> when my grandchildren came along, I wasn't sure my children were doing this with them, so I offered them 20 cents a chapter to <laughs> read the text and told <laughs> oh. them they had to go to their parents and get it signed off. I don't know that they did, but we cost us a lot of money. <laughs> but unless you've got a plan, and we'll talk about this in some other podcasts, to get them to read it and to explain it and then... It's, if it doesn't produce questions, we haven't been listening. Mm. Um, you can't read the Bible without questions. So to get the kids talking, get them asking their questions, and often it's the background information that brings it to life. And so learning to tell stories is part of, part of what's going on here and learning to wrestle. But that's, that's content. We've got to have a plan to do that. Then you've got to model it. As yeah. you were saying. And then, Dad, you've got to hear how things flow into then a model that you trained me up in and that uh-huh. you've seen all over the place. And I can't remember who your lecturer is that you got it from. Uh, but the idea of <laughs> head, heart, and hands was a frame. Yeah, on frame. Yeah, I'm sure he doesn't use those words. They're probably big, long words that I can't remember. Uh, but head, heart, <laughs> hands, you've added feet here because it's about you know, walking in the way and all that kind of yeah. stuff. I love that generally. Yeah, because it helps you to real to remember. Because I think one of the other things that our current culture does, like you're you're looking at the emphasis on this application, which is kind of the hands and feet type application, and we're neglecting the head. But I also think we're massively neglecting the heart mm. because we care very little these days about raising our children to have good characters, like to Attitude. like who they are mm. as a person to. And that used to be the way. Like, you think of what it used to mean to be a gent, like, you know, a gentleman, a, a gentleman and, a and all that kind of yep. stuff. It was actually about your character development and then the outworking of that character in your actions. Whereas now we 
seem to be doing more of the yeah. what is it like what are you acting like and then it kind of creates that dichotomy of yeah. you know how I behave in public compared to who I really am when I when I look at when I when I did my dip ed back in 1972 <laughs> I mean in philosophy of education I mean this is just after Vietnam Vietnam was ending you know there were still people throwing smoke bombs and tomatoes around the university campus and doing all sorts of terrible things, mm. uh, riots left, right and centre, anti-Vietnam. But it was the generation that threw out the rule book. So no authority. We don't trust anybody. Uh, nobody tells us what to do. You know, tune in, drop out, turn on. Uh, Timothy Leary's drugs will solve the world's problems. Uh, that, that whole generation, we then walk into teachers' college to say, how will you teach kids? <laughs> and my generation was told to teach kids using the Socratic method. Mm -hmm. So the only thing I remember of our dip ed philosophy course was reading uh, Plato's dialogue with Menno. I don't know if you did you have to do that. No, I do know about Socratic circles and the Socratic yeah. method in general. Okay, but... so so Plato, Socrates is having this discussion with Menno, and they're these two old coots, and they're debating what is virtue, and uh, Socrates is of a mind that there must be an absolute virtue somewhere up there. It can't just be the virtues that go with your different status in society. Um, you have to have a universal virtue or a universal goodness about you. Uh, his worldview was that your soul is immortal, mm. and because your soul is immortal, you have virtually past lives guy relates to buddhism quite well <laughs> and he keep going round and round and round to get it right but he because of that he claimed that knowledge and understanding of everything is innate and our problem isn't that we don't know our problem is that we don't remember yeah and so the socratic method was to draw out your memory of whatever it is that we're teaching so instead of telling you the answer, he got you to figure it out for yourself. Now, it's incredibly dishonest because he pulls a slave over, go find me your dumbest slave, and I'll teach him how to do Pythagoras. Or I'll prove to you that he knows how to do Pythagoras' theorem. So he pulls this poor slave over who doesn't know diddly squat, and he does this experiment, but it's cheating. It's leading questions. He's feeding him the answer, drip feeding it, till he gets to the, where he wants him to go. It's totally manipulative. Now, that's the Socratic method. If you use the opposite method where you pour the information in, mm -hmm. the problem with that is it offends our pride. Somebody's telling me what to do. Somebody's telling me what the right answer is. Somebody's holding me accountable for getting it right as opposed to getting it wrong. So from my generation doing, you know, don't bother standing up there pouring information into little brains. Mm. What we want you to do is get up there and draw it out of them. And I'm going, you're joking. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're joking. That's not how it works. <laughs> and so, yeah, in, in the middle of that, we have in the background Foucault and postmodernism happening mm. where there is no truth, there is no right or wrong, there's no meaning to anything. Uh, you can make it up as you go along. Well, here we are, 50 years later, and that's exactly what's going on. What's happened to our schools? What's happened to our education of our kids? 
they have to generate their own worldview. They have to generate their own truth. They have to generate their own whatever they want to do. And our schools have become not places to generate character because that would be to violate their Mm. autonomy. You know, they should become their own characters, which they are. They'll even help us. We're not forming character, but what are we doing? We're producing economic units to go out and make money. Mm. So school is now no longer about forming character. It's about producing economic units that will be productive. And so all of school is about getting to year 11 and choosing business studies so that you can make money. (laughs) Well, choosing at least subjects that will get you into the uni course that you want to get into. No, but not a uni course that will create character or culture. No. But a university course that will get you a more higher-paying job. That's right. Become a doctor. Become a doctor. And if you become a doctor, are you being a doctor in order to serve and to heal? No. Or are you being a doctor, a doctor in, to earn money. in order to do procedures that you can charge a fortune for? Yeah. It's, it's changed the culture. And what we're doing when we raise our children and give them an informed choice is we're critiquing that culture and we're speaking to the heart attitude. And I would say the first principle of educating a child is the fifth commandment. Honour your father and your mother that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you. You'll live longer if you are humble enough to do as you're flippin' told. (laughs) Because when I say stop... And you don't stop because you're autonomous. That mm. black snake waiting for you is going to have a meal. Yeah. Number of kids you see running onto the road on purpose because they think it's funny. <sighs> this this a- attitude towards authority. Here is the God who created the heavens and the earth, giving you commands and a parent being told, teach your children to obey those commands, to walk in my way, mm. not off the track. That's an authoritative teaching, and we need to get past... I'm talking too much, but we had a a discussion with primary school teachers on behaviour management. I'm in special ed, so, you know, we we manage kids with behaviour disorders, and they asked me to come and talk to them about behaviour management. The biggest problem they had, I'm a sinner too, is a Christian school. I'm a sinner too, so how can I hold a child accountable? That was that was the psychology, that was the heart attitude that was stopping them from rebuking, correcting and disciplining kids. Mm. They felt guilty holding them accountable when they themselves got things wrong. Yeah. We, we need to learn what grace works, how grace works. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dad, I think that'll bring us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sharing insights, history, all kinds of stuff in this episode. It's been lovely. Uh, If you would like to ask any questions related to the theology of the child, you can head over to trainingforlifeatdeem.com slash 118. We'd love to get your questions and to answer those. Otherwise, I hope that you hit the subscribe button. Come back and join us next week. We'll be looking at how to go about teaching the Bible to your children. Yeah. Good fun. Oh, 